it's been a little bit a little bit of time. So in between episodes, we both saw Across the Spider Verse, the big popular yeah. film of right now. The the big the big hot one. It really and is for good reason. Honestly, yeah, it is. But as of right now, it's my favorite film of the year. Everyone yeah. that keeps asking me, it it is a five out of five for me. It is. Yeah. As we are recording this, I've seen it three times, and I haven't, <laughs> I haven't gotten tired of it. I still, I listen to Metro Boomin's soundtrack of it every now and again. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a banger. I mean, like everybody who's seen the first one, you know, knew what to expect, knew that we were, you know, signed up for a banger. But like, it is kind of shocking how. Yeah. Like, I would yeah. say they improved on it, which is and, crazy to think, because it's, like, you know, hard to complain about the first movie at all. Yes. I, I have some... I've known... I've heard some people both online and in person that I've talked to say that it's kind of hard for Across to be better than Into, mainly because Across is a part one to a part two, basically, because yeah. the third film will come out in March, so we have a nine-month wait. But at that same time, though, to be completely honest... Compared to what we usually get in terms of a middle film that's in a trilogy like this, like, I'm pretty fucking satisfied by the end of this film. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes, you know, I don't want to spoil anything since it's a new movie, but, like, it's a, it does a pretty good job of, like, kind of giving us a, a bit of a beat of closure for both Gwen and Miles yes. in their own little yes. arcs within this movie while also still leaving you on a fucking hell of a cliffhanger it is a, um, oh, it's so good though uh, and you know and there, there's plenty of movies with kind of you know um endings that necessitate sequels that people still call great movies you know you got yeah, empire yeah. strikes back and i mean more recently in like avengers infinity war nobody really complained that that was a cliffhanger no um it i think a lot of the i mean it is it's a weird thing though too because it's like infinity war almost has the feeling that like uh, yeah, because, I mean, again, it doesn't even feel like the same situation as Infinity because Across just feels like, well, Infinity War is doing a decent amount of job trying to tie stuff up to a certain point. Yeah. It knows it can't. Well, as Across the Spider-Verse does this wild thing where it goes, there's going to be a lot of loose threads by the end of this, but it'll still feel complete because of the things we decide to finish off by the end of this. Like you said, when it comes to Gwen and Miles and just... A little yeah. bit of thematic stuff, and especially moments that happen early on in the film that foreshadow moments that happen later. There is a good finality to a certain amount of stuff in Across. Mm -hmm. But there's just enough open that it's like, yeah, Beyond is going to be booming. I think it's going to be interesting to see how they tie it all together. Yeah. And But on top of that, because I, I was talking to friends this week, too, about it. It's kind of insane to think that on top of Across the Spider-Verse just being as good as it is, and also being a multiversal comic book film that deals yeah. with hundreds and hundreds of different Spider-Man in certain scenes where you just see just the craziness of trying to sell to people <laughs> the idea of a multiverse. We are now going to have a weekend or several weekends where we have two different comic book multiverse films yeah, right. right next to one another in vastly different ways. Yeah, the, the multiverse craze has like hit its zenith. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and then we had one last year, the multiverse. And it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like it's kind of crazy to think of like, 
yeah, yeah, I guess it's we've now gotten to the point where it's now common knowledge what a multiverse is. Right, yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah, where it used to be kind of, like, not even that long ago, kind of like a niche nerd sci-fi yes. theory. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's like, oh, yeah, everybody's everybody loves there. a multiverse movie, yeah. I guess. And we're I'm referring to The Flash, in yes. case anyone else out there is either surprised that film is still coming out or that it is coming <laughs> yeah. out this weekend, because it is yeah. out this weekend, and... As of recording, I have yet to see the film, but Andy has, and if you follow him on social yeah. media, you can probably say that he has a glowing review of the film. <laughs> right. Definitely doesn't have any issues with certain project yeah. parts of the film. And Well, if if a movie like, you know, if, if Across the Spider-Verse makes me just kind of not even think about the baggage and weight and cynical side of the multiverse blockbuster craze that's going on yeah the flash is here to like remind me exactly why people are sick of it god Um, i i mean we'll talk i mean we'll definitely i'm gonna have to bring up my thoughts on the film in the next episode when we talk about it because everything i've been hearing about it both rumors and also other reviews that are finally coming out that aren't just like this is a phenomenal film. Now we're getting actual kind of nuanced, <laughs> yeah. gray you mean area opinions takes. other than James Gunn's and Tom Cruise's. Which again, I love the <laughs> fact that like with James, it has the energy of like you can mix that with low expectations, with the fact that like yeah. out of the four films he was probably given that he was he got in the divorce. Yeah. Or of like He's, with with Snyder's DC and now his yeah. DC, like he has to deal with. It's probably. It's probably the most interesting of the four, I guess, is what he's probably thinking of and easy Maybe. to sell. He's he's doubled down on it now, I though. I don't know if you saw that. this I week. Did. He he once again called it one of the greatest superhero movies ever made. Which, okay. Which is incredible. That, um, is, that, is, that is quite a feat. <laughs> and I'm not surprised a lot of the reviews I've heard have said otherwise. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like, I know a lot of people are going to like this movie more than I did. Um, I, you yeah. know, a lot of people are also going to really hate this movie more than I did. But, like, <laughs> there, I can totally see why somebody would watch this movie and be like, yeah, that was fine. It was a good time. It was fun. And, like, for me, it yeah. was for, like, the first half or two-thirds. And then it just kind of descends into this mad dash of, like, oh, we got our cash in on all the multiverse nostalgia hype, mm-hmm. all this crap. And it's just throwing it left and right. And you're like... It, it's gross. It, it really I, feels gross. I believe that. As, because as somebody who feels like No Way Home is, is an amazing movie, despite the fact that a lot of people feel like that's weaponized nostalgia, this this is like, this gives me the ick. Um, <laughs> that only just makes me more excited. <laughs> yeah. It's a wild, it's a weird movie. I'll tell you that. Oh, it's not I, boring. I, I believe that 100%. I, I mean... For for those out there don't know, like trying to get a flash film made, at least on Wonder Brothers. I mean, just any studio that's trying to make a flash film total, it's taken three decades. Yeah. So the fact that it, we're now at the point where we actually have a flash film that is in is is complete is now going to be in theaters <laughs> soon. Yeah. And is featuring Michael Keaton's Batman. Yeah. A lead uh, actor who has. Uh, controversial background right. which is the understatement of the century yeah and just the amount of craziness that has surrounded this film just in production covid all that shit it's just still insane to me that after all that it really just apparently just goes for it in terms of certain wild kind of hail mary ideas uh, yeah because i in, mean in a very in a in a like punishingly meaningless way yeah it goes for a lot of ideas because <laughs> i mean what's funny too is like i think you i mean 
I agree with those people that No Way Home is weaponized nostalgia, but the thing difference, though, is, like, from No Way Home, it uses the weaponized nostalgia to get you there, but ultimately uses that to tell a probably the best Tom Holland Spider-Man story we've gotten yet. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I do to, not to expect me, the Flash to be weaponized yeah, nostalgia that right. gives me the best Ezra Miller Flash story we'll right. ever get. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I feel like that's gonna be to the me. One if thing. to me, if you can bring back something recognizable like that, whether it's an actor or a character or whatever, mm-hmm. and make it not only make sense in the story, but also give it a new sense of purpose and a new life and a new kind of emotional sense mm-hmm. of gratification, then in my mind, that's not uh, other than like, as from a marketing standpoint, that's not weaponized nostalgia anymore. I get um, that. Yeah. No, I get that. And flash just, yeah, totally misses the mark on that. I believe that. I hundred. <laughs> oh my God. They bring back all sorts of stuff, you know, and it, it doesn't serve any purpose. So I'm going to, I'm going with a friend of ours that I know is probably, going to enjoy it probably the best out of all of us sure, yeah and if he doesn't i think that'll say a lot because <laughs> i think i remember seeing the uncharted film with him a man who had never played any oh, of the games at that yeah, point yeah. and he didn't hate it like <laughs> i did so at sure, least i was like sure. well now the bar tells me that if i see, if we see a film together i think he will always enjoy we'll it more time. than i do yeah and that that'll be enough for me in certain yeah parts. well and you know another thing too is like their personal life and actions aside um the amount the degree to which you enjoy ezra miller's version of flash is gonna kind of carry your Mm -hmm. mileage through the movie i i personally don't really love ezra miller's flash never really have um so i found two of them to be kind of insufferable uh but i know some people really like um miller's flash so like if if that's your speed, then you're probably going to enjoy this that's, movie a lot more. That's a real good pun, using speed to talk about <laughs> the Flash. No, I mean, I I honestly, I'm in the camp of I have no opinion because the two times I've seen them perform are vastly two different ways. Yeah. And both are very flawed in their own ways, yet yeah. have well, potential, but... Yeah, surrounded by very flawed a very flawed movie. Yes. Two so, flawed cuts of a flawed movie. Yeah, so I don't... <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm going in with just hoping that it's enjoyable, but I'm not really. Yeah. I have no high hopes. I will yeah. say though, because you're also seeing you're seeing the new Indiana Jones and Dial of Destiny tomorrow. Yeah. Um, if you just tell me how it is compared, like, do you like it more than the Flash, and that'll be enough for me. Oh, okay. When you when yeah, you see can it, do. because like that also has been fascinating to see people talk. Do you know what IGN gave the film? Right. Oh no, no. Four out of ten. Oh. Do you know what they gave Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? uh seven seven out of yeah. ten <laughs> again different reviewers sure, so it could definitely sure. just again it's always skewed when it comes to sites like that but it's just wild to me yeah. to hear such again very I, wild kind of yeah. contra- contrasting opinions especially when james mangold is such a good fucking director right right yeah i also i just have to wonder if like debuting the film at con was a bad idea con film felt you know people go there to see yeah you know big name art house directors reveal their latest thing you know real um strange or thoughtful you know uh, pieces of 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 cinema and i don't know the indiana jones the fourth indiana jones sequel or yeah fourth sequel fifth movie yeah yeah 
I just wonder if some of the the reviews coming out of there are a little skewed just because it's like, that was maybe not the best environment for it. That's fair. But at the same time, on the flip side, just to be devil's advocate, Joker. Yeah. (laughs) Joker, weirdly, is a film that is very odd. Right. Strangely. But Joker's not really a blockbuster. It isn't. No. (laughs) I mean, it was functionally. Yes. No, but you got a point. It wasn't trying to be. You're absolutely right in that regard. But yeah, hopefully you have a fun time with that with our friend Austin. And yeah, and we will absolutely exchange mm. thoughts on the podcast. Yeah. And I will, and I'm, I'm seeing Elemental as oh, well. Oh yeah, I, I I'm eager to know your thoughts. <laughs> it's kind of you know. Um, let's let's put it this way: my girlfriend's really excited. Sure. I really hope I have a fun time. Yeah. I'm glad I'm going to see two films back to back this week, where I'm like, I just hope I have a fun time. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of another. Another Pixar's had a lot of those movies that ever since Inside Out kind of feel like Inside Out yeah. again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what what that is, but no. But it, I mean, fun fact: uh, the guy that directed Elemental, Peter Son, or I think Son. I hope I, either one of those is correct. Uh, he is a he's voice acted a couple things for Pixar, but I believe he is Genki, Miles' roommate in Across the oh, Spider Verse. Okay, wow, <laughs> which is a fun little like okay, that's kind of a. Yeah. Fun, I guess, intermeter, uh, like animated film kind Connection. of, old, yeah, fun fact thing. <laughs> but enough about fun facts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. I'm Logan, and I'm Andy. And today on Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy, we are talking about three films. Usually, we talk about three films that are tied by either numerical order, cast and crew, thematic elements. We talk about each film and discuss the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding them. And today we are not talking about anything tied to Indiana Jones, Flash, fucking Spider-Verse. <laughs> Pushing all that aside, we are talking about an odd trilogy that is tied by two things. Director Frank Darabont and acclaimed writer Stephen King. We are talking about the Frank Darabont's Stephen King trilogy, which in case you don't know, includes 1994's The Saw- Shawshank Redemption, 1999. It, it was. I don't know why. I, I've said it perfectly other yeah. times. Yeah. 1994's The Shawshank Redemption. There we go. 1999's The Green Mile. And then 2007's The Meast. The Meast. The Meast. Yeah, it's uh, a French film. Yes, totally. That's it. And um, wow. What a trilogy, to be honest. Out of all yeah. these films, I mean, I think. I don't know if you had the similar problem that i did while watching these were at least for me uh not a big spoiler alert narratively but for me watching shawshank redemption which a film that i love is one of my favorite films of all time yeah and watching the green mile for the first time ever oh you've never seen it never seen it all the way through it was one of those films i had seen bits and pieces of it's three and a half hours it's a lot but it's great uh i think both films are perfect so going getting out of the green mile i was like well it's pretty clear which one's the odd duck in these three. <laughs> but to start off with The Shawshank Redemption, in case you don't know, it is a Stephen King adaptation. It's based off of his short story, uh, Rita Hayward and The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Um, it was an Oscar-nominated film in 95. Uh, what film do you think beat The Shawshank Redemption in 95? Uh, this is fascinating because I both... should remember this, but I can't. Don't look it up. Don't okay. look it up. I don't I'll, remember. I'll tell you. I don't remember. Forrest Gump. Oh yeah. Okay. The same. Yeah. This is because this boggled my mind because I completely forgot about this. The same year that Pulp Fiction was nominated for seven Oscars, mm. Shawshank was nominated yeah. for seven. Wow. And then Forrest Gump got thirteen Oscar <laughs> nominations that wow. year. 
Yes. People really liked movies that year. Yeah, they really fucking did, especially ones with Tom Hanks. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, for The Shawshank Redemption, this is the very first time director Frank Darabont, which most people on this podcast would probably know either from this film, The Green Mile, or if you're a Walking Dead fan, he is the right. man that brought The Walking Dead to television initially. Yeah, he's kind of responsible for making that translation yeah. he created the he created the adaptation that ultimately ran for 11 seasons he only ran the first season before basically getting pushed out by mc for the second season yeah because he basically had the he had a certain vision that didn't work well and since then he really hasn't done much yeah so and kind of looking back on like fun trilogies we thought would be interesting to touch on we thought we'd touch on somebody who has not a not a done career like clearly he's still working and doing other stuff like he apparently does a lot of script doctoring work mm -hmm. he clearly could do more if he wanted i think his name being tied to the walking dead in some way shape or form probably brings residuals i would hope <laughs> but ultimately we thought it was interesting to talk about not only a director that has very few films under his belt right also we wanted to talk about a director that in i mean arguably to me has made three of the best Stephen King adaptations, if not the best three yeah. Stephen King adaptations right. of all of his stuff. Yeah, because there's I, there's a lot of King adaptations oh out there, God. and not a lot of good ones. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's funny too because if, yeah. Darabont picks the ones that are so drama driven. Yeah, I mean all of King's novels are drama driven, but it also is like has a lot of very uh, macro level kind of supernatural elements to right, it. Well, right. pretty Big much picture stuff. Yes, which the mist is the one that has the most, you know, supernatural. Yeah, yeah, very Lovecraftian elements to it. Well, as both the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile are pretty mild, or if you're the Shawshank Redemption, you have none. Yeah, it's just a realistic a, fiction yeah, story. It's a straight up drama that is. Oh, my God. So, I mean, with Shawshank, what is your relationship with the Shawshank Redemption? I uh, guess I should ask. So, yeah, I mean, this is I, – I saw it as a kid probably a couple times. Okay. Um, but before re-watching it for this podcast, I probably hadn't seen it in, in 15 years. That's okay. Um, like, it's not a movie that's been a part of my kind of adult film mm -hmm. consumer vernacular. Mm -hmm. um, I remember – I mean, it – is it still the number one movie on IMDb? It was for a long time. It was time. for a while. I, think, I don't know I if thought it a is Nolan anymore. film was up there for a bit. Maybe. And it came down. Yeah, it, yeah, it goes here and there. The Shawshank has just always been in the back of my mind as like the common consensus for, at least among the average Joe, for like greatest movie of all time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't even have a greatest movie of all time, but like, you know, yeah, that's not... Neither. It's never been in that conversation for me. I've always really liked the movie, um, at least from my memory of it. And I, I still really, really, really like the movie having just rewatched it. Um, but yeah, it's it's just one of those movies that's always been, yeah, everybody knows this movie. It's great. It's, it's awesome. Everybody that's, loves it. I mean, honestly, that's completely understandable. Yeah. Like, as someone who has been the complete opposite in terms of like, this was one of the films that was in heavy rotation in my household. <laughs> like, this is a this is a film that my family can all agree on is phenomenal. It's uh -huh. one of my favorite films of all time Yeah, because of just, I mean, there every single bit of this film for me is like a five out of five. It just, everything works on the right level, all the performances, the structure and the fact that this film was two and a half hours and just used its time perfectly. And also, and arguably like 
one of the reasons why I think Darabont is considered the best of Stephen King adaptations is the fact that, like, he just fucking understands the best elements of King, which are basically just, it's honestly his details. It's honestly mm-hmm. the details, it, it's all the devil in the detail situation where it's like, when it comes to films like, you know, or, like, his big stuff like It or The Shining, like, there's so much to those books that, like, it's hard to really translate all of that in a noticeable amount. Yeah. So a lot of that gets cut out. Or a lot of the backstory, a lot of the history gets cut out, and therefore a lot of good context and a lot of good, like, I would say, world-building kind of goes away. Well, as in sure. the stories that Darabont picks... Both Shawshank, I mean, Shawshank being a novella short story and The Green Mile basically being, I think it was six volumes that was put in a magazine. I don't know which magazine, but like basically every volume was a different month. Then it was kind of compiled together into one book. And apparently that book is shorter than The Shining. (laughs) I couldn't. So it's like it's not that long compared to King's standards. Right, right. King's written some long books. Yeah. But ultimately, like, the fact that Shawshank and Green Mile, and even The Mist, I'd say, even though The Mist is a short story, it doesn't really lose the little elements of King's writing in terms okay. of, like, yeah. it doesn't lose the element and also basically kind of uh, parades it around more and almost champions it more because you don't have a, you don't have a killer clown, you don't have <laughs> evil monsters in that first two yeah. To really kind of like hold to be like, well, that takes importance. Right. There's just a lot of space to really relish in the human characters and the yeah. little intricacies of who they are. Yeah. Like, I mean, in Shawshank, it's called Rita Hayward and the Shawshank Redemption because the Rita Hayward poster is one of the most important parts of the entire story. <laughs> yeah. And that's funny to think that, like, when it comes to Stephen King, to have one of the best films just be like, no, really pay attention to the poster. That's what you need to take yeah. to pay attention to in terms of like how much the seasons change, how much time, like how much the prison changes, and also ultimately what leads to the finale of the film. It's just interesting to me just to see. I mean, yeah, like saying the best films of Stephen King are by far would kind of be out of his, would be the minority in terms of what most people think of King in terms of like oh, yeah. his genre that he plays right. in the most. Yeah. Most people think fear. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Straight um, up horror. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it is interesting to think, I mean, at least, yeah, for my money and even this trilogy aside, like my favorite King adaptation, also not a horror story. It's stand by me. Yeah. Oh, love stand like, by me. King is such a powerful storyteller, even when, you know, terror is not a part of the story oh yeah Um, absolutely just a really effective communicator and kind of poet yeah and i think a good sam amy is also a great example by rob reiner in terms of knowing how to do king but also where you can cut it off and kind of have creative executions that kind of get the same points across because right with stand by me the way that that film ends up is so much more powerful than ultimately where I think the short story ends. Because <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of here's where all these people went yeah. like year by year kind of situations. Right. Like lore, film, deep lore about yeah. these child li- children's yeah. lives. And then in the film it ultimately takes a more creative yeah. theatrical feel to it. And that's what I think this does too. I mean Well that's something I think that clearly across all three of these movies darabont really has an yes. eye for is oh yeah when to change it and i, I it's funny because like 
Stephen Cree or sorry Stephen King Stephen King like fully agrees in, yeah. in a lot of his interviews about all three of these movies. He's like, yeah, he made the right decision there. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. it's just it's like different details about uh, mm-hmm. ca- characters, you know, fates or origins or yes, how they go about getting what they want. Just you know, it just it's not necessarily better than the the original story the way no, that did yeah. it but it's like better for this version of the story mm-hmm. um, I think than it would have been it's much more engaging yeah. i think because like the thing is as much as i love the king that i've read i've only read like i think three or four of the books to completion the thing about king that is really hard to get into especially what i assume adapting to wise is the fact that like because he takes his time you either need to find a way to condense it and ultimately you might lose some things in the power of condensing it or you full-blown just have to cut certain things. Yeah. And a lot of the times, some of the things that are cut, while they seem kind of, you know, tertiary, ultimately yeah. could be a very helpful tool to really add to certain elements that could end up being lacking in the final product. Right. It's one of the reasons why, when it comes to the It films, I honestly think, you know, It Chapter 2, while it has a lot of issues, I don't know if there's any way you can do a second, like, the second It film and not kind of have this feeling of like, well, there's too many balls to juggle. I don't necessarily know how this is going to turn out like perfectly. Yeah. Cause like that, that original book is so specific in how it ends and how it functions. And also the fact that that book is fucking thousands of pages. Right. That ultimately it makes a lot more sense that, you know, Darabont picks, I would say the shorter ones and just gives a lot more meat and potatoes to those shorter stories and really lets them air out and also gives the stories to, I think, phenomenal ensembles. The thing that's yeah. great about this trilogy, too, is I think every single one of these ensembles really, not necessarily perfects, but I think constantly just keeps the story engaging and knows exactly the right type of energy to bring to certain scenes. Right. Because, I mean, the, the standouts to Shawshank, of course, the main one is Morgan Freeman. Right. As Red, he got a fucking Oscar nomination, <laughs> and he, which he absolutely deserves. Yeah. He also got it for, like, best lead, which I think is a really cool thing that they did. I'm glad they right. did that. Uh, you have Tim, gosh, Tim, Tim Robbins. Robbins. Thank yeah. you. Is Andy Dufresne, uh, who is just, like, as as the character that you're kind of hearing the most about, but not really hearing him talk about himself as much yeah. it's fun to see how much robbins gets out of just physical acting as well as mm-hmm. like you know just kind of like the little nuances in the face as well as the silence that is very palpable in certain scenes and right um, well it's also interesting how both of those guys are you know entirely they were cast entirely against how the characters are described yes um, I, I, I mean morgan freeman that. obviously being black and red was originally an irishman and yes. you know they even kind of joke at that in the movie um and but uh tim robbins too being uh like a really he's huge he's like six seven he's or something very fucking tall <laughs> tall beanpole of a guy one of the tallest like big name actors in hollywood and um yeah at that point th- his character it, i think in the book is described as like short and kind of pudgy oh so he's, he's closer to fat ass more than anything <laughs> yeah the character yeah. who comes and goes so fast and shocking right. and yeah th- just the way that they i don't know it's always interesting and i appreciate it when um 
I don't know anymore. It's it becomes such a like pick one side of the aisle or the other kind of hot button issue whenever a character is ca- or an actor is cast against characters like previous yeah um previous descriptions or portrayals and it's yeah. like in this it's just clear that they just went with whoever captured the essence of the character mm-hmm. and like that's really all that's important in these in stories like yeah. that you capture the essence oh absolutely i mean it's it doesn't really matter what you look like as long as you can sell it yeah I mean, in my opinion, because I think we've had these conversations before in terms of when it comes to when you cast someone where it's like, yeah, if it's if it's different than what you're initially thinking of, even with that in mind, if this guy, if this person's the best person for the job. Yeah. Why not do it? Why not work around them so you can have the best possible person for it? And it's clear that, thank God, Darabont did that with the cast he was given because you just... You really have from top to bottom, even the smallest of roles just have impact, whether it's, I mean, like I said, fat ass, even a small little role (laughs) like that. He really is barely in the film, but he has such a profound kind of effect in terms of the prison system and how it remembers its inmates. Brooks from Shawshank. God, the Brooks shit is like, especially watching it now, because like between the last time I watched Shawshank and watching this one now, I've I've read all those King novels. Cause about the time I watched Shawshank first time I watched Shawshank, I had no idea it was a Stephen King book. Oh yeah. Despite the fact that my dad is a huge Stephen King nerd. He never really tried to bring it too much to attention <laughs> to it. It's just like, it's a great movie. Yeah. It's all that really matters. But after reading a lot of King's writing, you can really hear the prose and the execution of the script. Very similarly to like reading the best parts of a King novel. Like, yeah, in my, I mean, anytime Red has a monologue, it's clearly like it. I mean, Morgan Freeman now has become. It's not a joke, but more of a meme thing to have Morgan Freeman be like the narrator. Yeah, right. Like it's, right. It's but classic, like this movie is kind of the reason. The quintessential. For that. Yeah. yeah, like this because he's so fucking good at it. In right. This. For a trope that a lot of people, when they talk about screenwriting, say like, don't have fucking voiceover for your entire film. It doesn't work. To watch this film and be like, the fact that most people say that about like screenwriting, and yet this is considered one of the best films of the 90s, right, yeah. shows that it's all about execution. And also, yeah. if you have Morgan Freeman or not for that narrative. Yeah, yeah. But even when you don't have Morgan Freeman, when you have a situation like when you hear Brooks's last letter to the guys once he gets out, uh-huh. like even that's a phenomenal scene and phenomenal yeah. voiceover, and you get the king energy in terms of just the little things here and there and says like anytime like when Brooks brings up, like I've thought about like stabbing this guy just to get back into the <laughs> prison. And it's like, it's such yeah when it's, when he says it, it, there's no intensity to what he says to the line. It's almost like just a casual thought Yeah, where it's like, I just want to be back with my friends. Right. Well, and Darabont clearly once again has just such a keen understanding of King's voice because I'm pretty sure what I, I was reading through some interview and i'm pretty sure the brooks segment after he gets out of prison yeah is way more in depth than it is in the novella i'm not surprised um i think he gets like a very brief little excerpt about oh they heard this about him after he left and Mm -hmm. then he died or whatever it wouldn't surprise Um, me because again with the novellas he can't go as in depth right (laughs) and so so darabont you know basically kind of free wheeled this whole sequence just Mm -hmm. spinning off from a brief excerpt from the novella and totally you know like you wouldn't it doesn't miss a beat you don't 
no. think for a second that this isn't the same voice or, speaking. Or when the fact that in the in the kind of the epilogue or the third act of the film when we have Red's kind of final scenes, the fact that a lot of the same beats he goes through are very similar to when Brooks finally gets when he for, first got yeah. out. It's that seems like something that's very much like very much a Darabont choice that I think absolutely works in favor of the story, especially for the last moment yeah. of the so was red uh, kind of qu- like period on that moment. Right. It's, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, yeah, it's just cool to think how much of this movie or how much this movie is like a back and forth mixture of ripping things straight off the page and yeah totally making your own thing out of it you know the brooks thing being kind of entirely you know uh, something of of darabont's creation but then you have the uh the tarring the roof scene which is like that entire scene with the the where he gets mm-hmm. the beers and the thirty five thousand dollars conversation is like ripped straight out of the book like that's exactly how it's written makes sense down to every single line of movement yeah, cause it's then that, that is the scene that turns pretty much the entire film almost because yeah. it changes Andy's relationship with both the prison itself as well as the inmates in said prison. Right. So of course that's going to be a scene that if that's the scene in the no- novella in the short story that does that, of course you're going to have to just make sure that is perfect as is. Right. And I mean also the, another reason why this film was such a, a heavy rotation in my family is because the film was shot a lot of the film was shot in Mansfield, Ohio, where my family mm. is from. Oh, okay. So it's a you can even I think you even do a tour of Shawshank prison. Oh, it's that's not cool. called Shawshank, but the prison yeah. they shot a lot of the exteriors on, they shot in Ohio. Gotcha. Right. And it's I mean yeah, it's it, this is going to be the most difficult part talking about at least these first two films because it's just like what is there to say other than the performances are great, the cinematography is great. Yeah. Darabont, for his fucking directorial debut feature-wise, is doing incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this is just one of those movies that, like, is incredibly straightforward and just polished and acted to hell. And, like, the, yeah, it's not like it's some really weird, complex art piece or whatever it's just a very straightforward drama and sure it has like a couple twists and turns in there for you but like it's just a really well resolved simple story that hits yeah and uh i'm just glad i'm rewatching it again because i also rewatched it with my girlfriend who had never seen the film knew absolutely nothing and she thought it was great so yeah. i think that's kind of like why i think shawshank is so beloved is because like i think most people you show Accessible. it to yeah, it's it's an easy film to get people to go like, see, that's great. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it's just an easy one, and and arguably, when it comes to like, should it have won the Oscar that year that it was nominated? <sighs> <laughs> well, yeah. I I would agree that it should have, but at the same time, I mean, Forrest <laughs> Gump has not quite stood the uh, test of time that's the way cool. Shawshank was. That's a wonderful understatement, but yeah. I appreciate you being as nice as possible. Because <laughs> yeah, that's and I mean that's another thing that shows that like. Forrest Gump was also a heavy rotation when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. I watched that way more than I watched Shawshank. I would probably agree with that, where it's like, even if I watched Shawshank a lot more than you did, I think we both watched Forrest Gump more than that. (laughs) And even then, like, looking back at Forrest, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of this that is really not working like it did when it first came out. But Shawshank is held held up, tested time-wise. 
And, I mean, after Shawshank, I mean, what Darabont decides to do was probably going to shock most people. He wanted to do The Mist next. Right. Well, he'd, he, he'd he, been holding on to The Mist since, like, the yes, 80s. Because The Mist is, like, 1980, 1981 is when that short story comes right. out. Right, and he, like, very quickly, you know, he and King were friends, I guess, or knew each other Makes or whatever. And, and he yeah. got he secured the rights to the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I think, based on what he said, he just you know didn't feel like he had the ability to execute it to the quality that he wanted which so for he the was 90s, kind of waiting for that ability to come yeah for the 90s that makes a lot of sense yeah. i think you can do it but it is like now looking at what the mist ultimately became it's like yeah there's a lot of shit here that like yeah. even well, he, even yeah no even with cgi at that time being like you could right. definitely sell a studio doing that i don't think it would have worked the same way yeah yeah um yeah but ultimately, instead of The Mist, about six, about five years later, he does The Green Mile, which right. is also a film that is beloved by many. <laughs> is a film that has uh, an incredible, incredible, pretty, surprisingly to me, an incredible, pretty small, like a decently small role from Michael Clark Duncan. At least his importance-wise, he is not as important in the beginning as he is in the back half right. of this film, which I did not know. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I didn't really this. remember how much he's kind of just in the background during the first yeah. half of the movie. And But he's oh, he's so good. The late Michael Clark Duncan. It's a bummer that he passed away as early as he did because he's so fucking good, yeah. especially in this as John Coffey. But ultimately, you know, what does Darren Bond do after losing to Forrest Gump for the 1995 Oscars? Easy. You get... Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump, and he put him in his fucking next film, which is this. Right. And have Tom Hanks be the lead as, is it Paul Edgecombe? I think it's yeah. Edgecombe. Or, yeah, Edgecombe. Which is a, f- a film following, like, a bunch of death row... Uh, prison pr- guards. Prison guards yeah. in the 30s. Yeah. Uh, I think mid-30s, I think, is when it is. It takes place in like 1935. Uh, yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. And... Again, similar to Shawshank, but I even think to an even greater degree, since this film is three hours and some change, <laughs> yeah. again, it's funny to say it, since it's like that, now the the kingness of the narrative honestly becomes more apparent. Right. Because to me, because like, for example, when I read something like Christine, like Christine, I think is a great book. I really enjoy that book. It's a lot of fun. It's also 450-ish pages. Yeah. And the car doesn't start killing people or start doing, like, supernatural stuff until 100 pages in. Yeah. Which is not a bad thing. That's actually pretty standard for a lot of King (laughs) stories. But seeing that in film form, the fact that, like, the first hour of this film is just building the rapport between the guards, Mm -hmm. the hierarchy of, like, who's the newest person and who's the highest of that. Yeah. All the other death row inmates that are there – uh, fucking Edgecombe's UTI. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all these things just to take an hour to really just focus on that. Mr. Jingles. Right. Of course, the mouse. Yeah, there's a lot more of that kind of king quirkiness, little yes. weird idiosyncrasies in the plot. That, Which like, I love. Yeah, I'd... that like could totally just be passed over details, but in King's movie are like critical story yeah. beats. <laughs> yeah, again, <laughs> that pervade the entire movie. That's why, like, a lot of King's writers, especially uh, King's fans, especially my dad, are like, "Wait, they're gonna cut that one little thing? <sighs> no, it could fuck up the whole film." Right, yeah. And it's so funny to hear that. Like, that's Where's insane. Where's the space turtle? I was gonna say that's insane, Dad. And he's like, "Yeah, but like, 
fucking read it. You'll understand. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, after reading some of these books where he said that too, it's like, yeah, I fucking get it. <laughs> everything works, <laughs> or right. everything at least has a place. Yeah. And with the Green Mile, it kind of it does that incredibly well up to the point where like an hour in is when something magical happens. Yeah. And then you have another two hours to figure out where the hell this goes. Right. And it does it really well. Again, yeah. because of an incredible cast filled with a bunch of character actors. I mean, next to Tom Hanks, you have David Morse, Barry Pepper, Jeffrey Demune, who is in Walking Dead proper. He is Dale in the first two seasons. Yeah. He also is in every single one of these films because he's clearly a Darabont. He's a friend of Darabont's. Right. He plays the prosecuting lawyer in Shawshank. Yeah, he's, I was trying to remember what he was. Yeah, in that. he's probably the one with the least amount of lines of the security guards in uh, Green yeah. Mile. Yeah, and then he plays oh, an God. old guy. I'm gonna say Dale, but it's not Dale in uh, The Mist. But he plays an older gentleman that works with with Thomas Jane in yeah. The Mist. And you also have William Sadler, who is one of the inmates in Shawshank Redemption. He is. A smaller role in this film, but I think he does a great yeah. job with what he's given. It's kind of a bookend role. There yes. At the beginning and the end. And he's also a hick hillbilly in The Mist. Right. Most people would know William Sadler in, let me insert all these fucking roles he's done, because he's yeah, done he's, so much He's kind of one of those, uh, um, maybe to like modern audiences, a that guy actor. Yes, like he, he, he shows is. up in a movie, you're like, oh, him. Which I feels, know him. Which feels like a lot of Darabont's mainstays in a good way, where it's sure. like, Clearly, a lot of these people are not A-listers, and that's not a bad yeah, thing. It's because, a lot of character actors. And they're damn good at yeah. their job, especially with like The Mist being led by Thomas Jane, who I think, in my yeah. opinion, deserves to be in where Frank Grillo is in the back pocket of, like, I like this guy. <laughs> I want him, and I like him when he's in things. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, but again, I think it's a great choice to have with both of these films. You have kind of a heavy hitter with this one, Tom Hanks. Yeah. In the lead, you have Bonnie Hunt, James Cromwell. Ah, speaking of character actors, put Cromwell in there, and <laughs> I'm just going to love it. You yeah. put the farmer from Babe, and you're just not going to not love what's happening. Well, and Cromwell has a way of, like, kind of seeming like, like he could be this the same person who's just immortal and has lived all these lives across all these yeah. different movies. Yeah. He just has this weird quality about him that's almost ethereal. He, yeah, he is. I mean, he. I mean, I'm, he's this warm kind of old man presence, but he also plays a really cold bastard sometimes. Uh, he's so good at um, it. And somehow it all feels like it could still be. I don't know if that's just him being him, but uh -huh. yeah. No, yeah, it's. Oh my gosh, you also. I think it's uh, Patricia Richardson, oh, who's his yeah, wife, yeah, yeah, yeah. another actress that is in a bunch of stuff. Really good. You just, you just again have a cast that is given king material and just given the air to breathe and they just sell it if there's anything i i would probably give it a one up to, to green mild even shawshank as much as i love the cast in shawshank god the fact that like like you said the quirkiness of king is more apparent in the green mile you get a lot more fun moments yeah it's in the way green more well, well the weird thing is like green mile is almost i mean it's definitely sadder than yes. than shawshank but somehow also has more levity yeah, it's, Shawshank it, is kind of like this is depressing and it sucks, and then kind of an uplift of hope at the end. And Green yeah. Mile is like, oh, this is kind of fun and whimsical, mm -hmm. and then it's like, oh god. Yeah, Shawshank's whole appeal to a degree is like, since we are following the prisoners, it is a story that is humanizing people in the prison system. Yeah, the idea of redemption and second chances. 
and right. ultimately being like, well, what if one of them, maybe two of them, got that chance? Yeah. Or maybe three. So what would happen? Well, as the Green Mile is basically a man understanding that with the job he has, what if he runs into something that he truly cannot understand? And if he does understand, yeah, his job is to basically his job is to kill the people that are in his mm-hmm. in, that are in his profession so it's ultimately yeah. how do you handle with the fact that you find someone that is beautiful and magical and ultimately is set to die in a few weeks yeah which is an well, interesting and, narrative yeah works and really also well. kind of both movies are ultimately sort of about hope and yes. and mm-hmm. you know letting that be at the end of the day at the end of the very dark times that you're living in or whatever let that be your guiding light um but they take yeah almost not opposite but kind of contrasting approaches to arriving at that point it's it's shocking because it's especially you know they're in basically the same setting you know they're both prison movies about prisoners who you know you learn to love and Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing and And yeah like Green Mile, Green Mile is arguably in a worse situation because you're, a lot of the people that you're it's, like yeah, getting to know row. yeah, are horrible human beings or people that are very sorry for what they did, but guess what? They Too have bad. To pass, yeah, they yeah. have to die anyway because they were yeah. sentenced to. And it's just, oh my God. I mean, anytime there was the Mr. Jingle shit was just like the most fun in the early parts with yeah. the mouse. And it had been a long time since I saw this movie, and I didn't really remember Mr. Jingles. Which so like is when shocking. when they were doing that stuff early on in this movie, the little antics trying to catch the mouse and stuff. I'm, mm-hmm. I was like, this is like a fun little scene, but like why why is this lasting so long? And, and like, then it's like he keeps coming back, and you mm-hmm. yeah. By the end, we all love Mr. Jingles. Yeah, Mr. Jingles is for everybody yeah he's, he's a great little mouse he is the sweetest mouse i've ever seen I'm, I'm, except for stewart <laughs> it's little. a great mouse actor or actors. oh my god yeah i don't know how many they had to use but like also, a pretty impressive performance from the mouse i mean considering like today you would just have a cgi mouse for the yeah. whole movie but yeah speaking um, of, i mean speaking of effects with the mouse also great practical effects with the yeah mouse. yeah there's some little there's a lot moments of, yeah, mouse endangerment in this movie God. that you clearly couldn't have used a real mouse for, but yeah, the, it's still convincing. God, it's... I mean, yeah, I. it's funny, too, because I think the one thing that was more apparent, I think, in this film than it was in Shawshank, and then ultimately becomes even more apparent in The Mist, is I think with each film in the trilogy, it becomes more and more theatrical. And not in the sense of, like, film theatrics. I think of stage theatrics like more dramatic more yes. melodrama because yeah. a, because it's i mean because in shawshank it's sh- it's shot in a way where everything is clearly it's a real prison it's clearly all real there's clearly sets in the film but ultimately everything feels grounded realistic feels yeah. like it was shot at a location it doesn't feel like it's on a set yeah well as with the green mile wall also feels very authentic it's clearly shot on a set yeah, it's in a um, lot of the shots. It's clear that, that but it's, it's not a bad. Yeah, realism versus formalism, and yeah. Green Mile is way leaning more into yes. the formalist aspect. Yeah, because oh my uh, gosh, there's also I think bigger moments in in Green Mile in terms of like in in like set quote unquote set pieces. They're not real set pieces. <laughs> these in a, this these film. action sequences yes. in the Green Mile. No, yeah. but there's like you know, 
There's a botched execution, which right. is like, there, I think we consider yeah. that. There's the... Big kind of high-energy, high-tension moments, mm-hmm. whereas Shawshank is all a lot more even keel. There's, there's yes. a little bit, there's a couple moments that are like kind of jarring or shocking or whatever, but it's way more mm-hmm. just played in a more understated way. Yeah. Green Miles, yeah, much more bombastic. Mm-hmm. The Yeah, Shawshank is mainly about a relationship growing between two inmates and the you know secondary relationships they all have with everybody else whether it's prison guards the warden or other inmates well as green mile is clearly about what if you put an angel on death row yes <laughs> and it's about the not just tom hanks and his kind of reaction to it yeah but it's everybody that he works with because yeah because to me i mean the one thing i didn't know about this film and spoilers i guess but at the same time if you know what we're talking about we're going to talk about john coffee at the very end of the film yeah his his execution on death row um the whole please don't put the don't put the mask on me i'm afraid of the dark i mean i that was the scene that i knew going into the film i knew it was going to be like at the tail end so it's really going to hit hard but what i didn't know is how all the other guards were aware of Coffee's situation, how they knew what like really happened to the little girls he was put on trial for, right. and how ultimately every single one of them knew that what they were doing was wrong. Yeah. But if Coffee accepted his fate, he wanted it to happen. But ultimately, like I didn't expect of all the stuff in there. Like I mean, again, Michael Clark Duncan, fucking phenomenal in this film, and he deserved his Oscar nomination for the 2000s Oscars. But I didn't expect just having a shot of every single one of the prison guards' reaction to, you know, putting the sponge on his head, getting closer and closer yeah. to the death. Like, Barry Pepper. Barry just Pepper is breaking the thing that up. Pop- yes. Yeah. And when uh, Tom Hanks shakes, like when Edgecombe shakes his hand right before they go on to David Morse holding it together like a real motherfucker, but clearly <laughs> is waiting to just like have one thing to make him burst. Yeah. Like, it all just is, like, it comes together in a way where it's, like, I get why we don't do three-hour movies, but this is a great example of why people do three, like, long-ass <laughs> films to really get to this crescendo of an ending that really feels impactful and just goddamn good. And then ultimately ends on a note that is, like, I think classic King in terms of, like, it all tying together in a weird way. Yeah. Like, the whole time discrepancy being like, oh, my God. I wasn't even fucking thinking about <laughs> right, that. Right. Of all the things I was thinking about, right. it wasn't that. Um, but Shawshank kind of has that moment, too, at the very end when uh, Andy sends basically a letter to Red and says, like, you remember the one thing I told you that one time when we were talking right. about where we go? Yeah. Which, of course, Family Guy does a wonderful joke of <laughs> when they have a Stephen King episode. Yeah. Where it's like Red forgets what fucking Andy <laughs> said, but it's again, yeah, it's like it's all the little things with S- S- King when it comes back around, and it's like, fuck, yeah, this is good. And the Green Miles no exception to that, and the Green Miles no exception to being, you know, wildly beloved, Oscar nominated. Also, I think King, it's still King's favorite adaptation. I think oh, as of right okay. now, that it was for fair. a while. I don't know what else would change it. I doubt, I doubt it. It chapter one or two changed that for <laughs> no. him. Which I like both those films, but yeah. I don't really think it's going to do well for that. But um, ultimately, it also, I think, didn't win any Oscars at the 2000s Oscars. Uh, yeah. Um, gosh, I had it in my brain. What? Oh, 
American Beauty was the best picture winner that year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Cider House Rules was one of the bigger films that year as well, which <laughs> that's a film I haven't seen in a very long time. Yeah, and I don't even know if I've really seen... talks about anymore. Yeah, the classic Oscars film. Yeah. A classic nomination from the Oscars. Right. But ultimately, with these first two films, what you get is even if you know going into it what the quote-unquote twist is in Shawshank or how Green Mile ends... Ultimately, it doesn't change the fact that both these films are very emotionally impactful and worth the ride through them. Yeah. And also, there's something that is fun, interesting about this trilogy is that while those two films are also phenomenal, they are also not as fucking sad as this last film in this trilogy. <laughs> it is also, those films are normal in comparison to how this film feels, at least yeah. in terms of Darabont as a director. Yeah. Because, I mean, going into The Mist... I think the one thing that I was glad about looking at, because I've seen this, I think, two times. Okay. So this might be the second. So it's either the second or third time I've seen this all the way through, because I like Green Mile and Shawshank. You know, I see clips of these constantly, just like yeah. thrown around. I, and, on the other hand, had never seen any of this movie except the ending, okay, which of course. is, you know, I all over YouTube and stuff. Yeah, so. I think a lot of people are aware it's of like this in film. compilations of like wildest endings in movies yeah. of all time. Yes, and that's, yeah. it deserves it. It rightly deserves it because <laughs> Jesus Christ, for a man that is clearly really, you know, in love with the uh, the the material he adapts. Yeah. The fact that he took the mist and, it, and <laughs> made it darker. Yeah, and made it go to the point where King is like, "I am pissed. I didn't come up with that. That is right. fucking horrifying." It is great to see, you know, even though the and the whole film itself is definitely the weakest of the trilogy and has some issues. Ultimately, the mist I think is still pretty great in how it. Yeah. handles its material and i think the craziest thing about how it handles its material is that like i was saying how each film kind of had more stage theatrics tied to it the mist feels like it it's like a stage play yeah a lot of the times a lot of the ways things yeah. are shot it's very like one set one yeah, yeah like small cast kind of not even one act but like yeah that very like mm -hmm. capsule kind of like a twilight zone episode yeah. where it's just a bunch of people in a room and it feels clearly purposeful because if, if you go like for example like it's something like shawshank and shawshank is clear when darabont writes scripts he used something like red's parole hearings as act one act two act three yeah he uses those as a way to kind of find a way to keep himself in line in the story and not lose track and with the mist he uses fades as if it's and end scene. Yeah. Come down. Everyone get in position. Scenes right. back. And right. it's like, it feels clearly like, because when we were watching this, I was like, because I watched it with my roommates, I did not expect them to sit down and watch the whole <laughs> thing with me because I was like, oh, they know how sad this is. Spoiler alert, one of them had never seen it before, so they were <laughs> quite off. Well, yeah, Friday had yeah. never seen it before. They were quite caught off guard by it. But um, the fact that, like, all the fade-ins and fade-outs, we were like, Jesus Christ, there's so many fucking fade-outs. Then I realized, yeah. oh, it's the end of a scene in a play. And then it comes back. And then it's like, what? why, like, you know, scratch, why even worry about what happens in between if, like, right. you know, we really just want to get to the more interesting stuff <laughs> in, a, in a film that's really about people being stuck in a supermarket. Yeah, it's a pretty lean movie. Yeah, it's also, the unsurprisingly, the cheapest of these three films. Yeah. Because yeah. Shawshank was $25 million. In '94, uh, Green Mile was the highest. No surprise, was 60 million in '99. Yeah. This was 18 in 2007. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, just from the the scale of it and the you know 
camera rigs and and sets and everything it's clearly like the smallest um, yeah budget no, but right. like it doesn't it doesn't look cheap and it it's actually especially for when it came out late 2000s horror is surprisingly like reserved and smart with its camera and Absolutely. you know i mean this movie came out in the midst of like you know the torture porn craze in horror yeah and this is like the antithesis of that yeah there's people getting gored by foul creatures but like it's really more of a kind of psychological tension movie yeah it's it's another example of just like darabont understanding king's work yeah in terms of like king anytime king is asked like what scares him it is never the monsters that he makes right like the main will just say like i don't give a fuck about monsters you know what scares me alzheimer's and brain aneurysm <laughs> and it's like okay jesus yeah. and like when you think of king as like what really horrifies him it is people using religion as a way to turn people evil <laughs> yeah that's so and, much of his work oh my god the amount of fucking religious kind of priests or kind of pundits yeah, that cult cult, cult figures oh, yeah god marcia gray harden fucking kills it in this film as uh miss carmody yes yeah. who apparently is like an old bag of bones in the original <laughs> novella and of course she comes in and it's like yeah she's like a 30s 40s woman in this. And, it, and showing how good darabont is like her introduction is like a background character in like the first scene in the supermarket she barely has says anything it's not until she is kind of confronted by uh laurie holden's character which it's yeah. andrea from walking dead but her fucking name amanda is, me, amanda thank Miss you Dunphy. oh my god of course it's the same it's close to andrea yeah but when Amanda yeah, tries to comfort her and like basically is like, fuck you, I have God to protect me, bitch. It's like, all right, from that point forward, she becomes yeah, an issue. <laughs> right. And she just kills it. Yeah. Speaking of someone who just fucking kills it, I completely forgot that Toby Jones is in this film. Yeah. I, a, he's doing a, like a mid-American accent. Uh, he's and so good. Yeah. Who would have uh, known Dobby would be such a great shot? <laughs> he's so good. He's such yeah. a he's, – I did not know. I completely forgot of someone who has seen this film. That it is mainly a lot of this film is just Toby Jones with a gun, just getting some Shooting wild things. fucking shots. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess we, I mean, we haven't really talked what, about what this movie really is or what it's about. Yes. It's obviously a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the mist, you can gather that it's, you know, a movie about a, this mist rolls into town. People who go into the mist start dying. Mm-hmm. And basically we're f- for, focused on, kind of a small collection of these townspeople who kind of get trapped inside a, a general store yeah. surrounded by mist and yeah. nobody wants to go outside because they mm-hmm. keep dying yeah mm-hmm. so it's kind of it's really more about the horrors enacted and imagined by the humans in the room mm-hmm. and less about the monsters although there's still plenty of monsters it has the it has the energy of like a stage play that is like a full-blown stage, maybe something that's off-Broadway, but with the intimacy of, like, a black box theater yeah. where you can see every yeah. angle and every kind of... Because this is a film it's, where the, um, the camera feels like a fly on the wall all the time. Yeah, it's... Uh, what is it? Um, the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. That, yes. Which yes, was, yes, a, it was like a stage play that became a Twilight Zone episode or maybe the other way around. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's a people in a community who begin turning turning on each other because mm-hmm. of the threat that they perceive outside yes. their door. Yeah, because it's it's, gosh, I mean, if Darren Bond made a film now, I would just be fascinated to see what he'd think about like using drones, because a lot of these shots felt like 
proto like drone shots but clearly it's it's clearly just somebody holding a camera moving in and steady cam and whatnot but like yeah. the amount of these shots where it just feels like a camera is just flying by characters like uh we've already heard a little bit from these guys what are these military guys doing back here <laughs> yeah they're not talking about anything but you should pay attention to them maybe and it's like this whole film is just either shots like that or shots that are like from a low angle as if it's like gum onto like a like, like gum on a countertop or just like yeah. a fly on the wall like Lots again of kind of vastly yeah. different than the other two films in terms of it's very approach. you're in the room yes um yeah like you're one of the people that are stuck in there which yeah. is appropriate and i think it works it's just i will say jarring initially especially after yeah. the last two films stylistically so different from the mm-hmm. previous two cuz i mean how did you watch these kind of like i did where it's like every night you kind of had a new one did you watch, cuz i watched Shawshank uh, yeah. and well, I watched no i watched <laughs> i made the mistake of watching it wasn't a mistake i enjoyed my time but i watched the green mile and the mist back to back i didn't realize the green mile was 3, three hours. hours long yeah. so i was like man this is really the night's going by. I still got to watch another movie. Oh, okay. This is, yep, over three hours. All right. It's 11 <laughs> o'clock. I guess I'll throw on the mist. That's so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, anytime we do an episode, I, even if I, it's a film that I've seen before, I always just check the time <laughs> just to be like, all right, how do, what do I think of this film is lengthwise? And when I thought of Shawshank, I was like, uh, is it like a tight two hours? And I was like, it's two and a half. Yeah. Makes sense. How about Green Mile? And I was like, oh, fucking three hours. I gotta put some time away. Gotta yeah. random. When's my next day off? Right. <laughs> I'll have to watch that then. But yeah, the thank God the mist is two, because if it was any longer, it'd be it, it would just hurt. Yeah, even more than it already does as a two-hour film. But yeah, the mist. I mean, th- there's a little bit we talked. I talked earlier, but like the lead is Thomas Jane, who is yes. his last name is Drayton. I can't remember his David first name. David Drayton. Oh yeah, I was gonna say yeah. I knew it was like a little bit of a little. He's like a an artist, a yeah. painter. The first thing he's fucking painting is <laughs> the gunslinger from the Dark Tower. Yeah, which I can't remember if that actually is in the novella. Like if he's like if it says like he's oh, painting. I don't know. Yeah. But that's it's such a cheeky little nod. Of right. all the things that Darabont does, is kind of cheeky nods to King because I know there's cheeky nods in both Green Mile and Shawshank, but. Yeah. Nothing's cheekier than just seeing Thomas Jane paint clearly the fucking gunslinger from, like, <laughs> King's interconnected saga. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, um, let's see. What other things? I mean, because I'm just trying to hold time until we talk about the ending. Because the, oh. the, the ending's the most <laughs> sure. notable part about this fucking film. But uh, before we get to that point, I'm just thinking of, like, the performances in general, like, I think are great. But... Yeah. Again, similar to the rest, similar to this film compared to Green Mile and Shawshank, like the approach is vastly different. Is why I also think it's like very play like. Like Andre yeah. Brower, great actor. Every time he spoke, it just felt so different compared <laughs> to like any of the other films. Yeah. There, there's like it wasn't like it wasn't well, you- natural, but it, it there was a bit of like there's there's more the way to describe it. i don't know it's almost like characters characters are i mean this is a bleaker movie for sure than yes, the other two yes and i think as a result a lot of the characters in it are way more cynical like every character is way more cynical than the characters in the previous two even shawshank where you've got a bunch of jaded inmates who know they're gonna live out their days in prison yeah are more earnest and kind of 
straightforward mm-hmm. uh, in the way they talk. And in this, yeah, there's a lot more like kind of banter and people at each mm-hmm. other's throats and just snark. And Andre mm-hmm. Brower's character is one of the main purveyors of that, where he's just like, oh, come on, man. Quit fucking with me. He's and the lawyer. Like <laughs> yeah. God, the whole beer conversation was the funniest shit in the world. Where yeah. you, you just see all the guys at a certain point, like in this old group, drink like a swig of two or beer. Like, <laughs> he's just, like oh, you're drunk. Yeah. Like William Seiler just pulls out like a fucking warm beer off of a counter and just like, because they just saw a fucking tentacle monster kill a yeah. bag boy right. and don't know how to fucking process that and tell anybody. And then, yeah, as soon as they start to tell their people, they just go, well, you're drunk. Yeah. It's like, what are you? that's not how alcohol works. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah. Why are you doing They're that? just sitting back there drinking beers. Yeah. I will say that could also be just when it was written. Because, again, both Shawshank, I believe Shawshank and The Green Mile. The Green Mile's like whole kind of volumes were done in 1996. Yeah. So it was pretty recent in terms of how King wrote stuff. And then with Shawshank... I don't think it was a big time between when the film was adapted. When I think it was like 87 or 89 Yeah, or which something. is not a big gap yeah, yeah. compared to The Mist, which is like 1980, 1981 yeah, to like 2007. Yeah, way earlier in King's career. And while, yeah, he, I mean, yeah, I think Darren Bond finished the script for this in 04, 05. And apparently they shot this film in like February, March of 07, and they released it November of 07, <laughs> which props to them. Quick that's turnaround. That's one hell of a turnaround. Yeah. But ultimately, like, it does feel like the writing is a lot older in terms of King. Yeah. Because it honestly, <laughs> it's not the same it's type a of film. Stiffer. It's a lot, I mean, it's the film I would compare this to, and this is has nothing to do with actual, like, genre stuff. But, like, it reminded me of Maximum Overdrive in terms of, like, Maximum Overdrive as a film is, like, pure 80s King <laughs> in the worst way. The okay. Mist is not nowhere near as bad as the yeah. shit that happens. But, like... You have the religious guy that's a fucking asshole and is clearly, like, the bad guy. Right. You have just the writing that just feels such of the era in the execution of such things. And, I mean, Maximum Overdrive also had King on Coke. (laughs) Well, as I think, which I think is, like, with The Mist... Well, this might have been on Coke, it, it too. It could have been. I don't think it's Tommyknockers bad. Because you know about Tommyknockers. Like, he doesn't even remember writing that book. Right, yeah. I don't think it's even to that point. Because I think this is a part of Skeleton Crew, which is like a short story compilation. This, yeah, yeah. That's, I think, decently beloved. But, or enjoyed, at least by King's fans. But, you know, it just the way that it was, like, approached in terms of, like, how Darabont adapted it, it feels clearly like he's taking an older text. Yeah. And not really taking it out of the 80s to it entirely but taking it just enough they would work in 07 yeah where it doesn't feel like we're hearing shit in like it's like oh that sounds like something that was probably written in the 80s <laughs> it was more just like if you know you just know a little bit out of time yeah just yeah. a little bit i think anything that a lot of sadler what he says i think is a little bit like i think the most noticeable in terms of like if you keep talking like that i'm gonna sh- like <laughs> introduce your my your butt to my f- ten like to my ten foot yeah, like, yeah. guy like ten size boot and it's like all these things you're saying they work because yeah. you're a good actor but like it feels so very this is odd one very creative redneck yeah yeah he's very creative and then when, until they <laughs> call him stupid <laughs> actually that's one of my favorite lines in the film is um when they initially are int- when the film introduces initially that the mist is tied to some monsters in it is when the bag boy gets murdered by this right. giant tentacle creature 
that is like pronged and also kind of it seems like it has a mind of its own and whatnot. Yeah. After they survive a set attack, but the the bag boy's dead. Uh, William Sadler's Hick is kind of one of the first people that really pushed to open the gate and ultimately got the bag boy killed. And then Thomas Jane punches the shit out of him. <laughs> and the Hick's best friend, I think it was Byron or Myron, um, uh, says like, hey, leave him alone. He didn't mean it. And then <laughs> Thomas Jane's fucking character goes like, yeah, well, he has, he has a fucking excuse. He's dumb as shit. What's your excuse? <laughs> it's like, that is so silly. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. Or also, like, later on in the film where uh, Toby Jones gets a sick shot off of somebody at the end of the film. Like, it's it's a, oh, kill, it's a yeah. kill you've been waiting. And, like, both him and fucking Thomas Jane, it's almost like they're, they're like, spitting one-liners back to one another. Like, it's an action <laughs> film. Right. Like, they're back-to-back with guns. Yeah. And it works. And, it, like, it works in a satisfying way, but it's also, like, this is such an odd film. Yeah. Especially after what I've watched these last two days. Yeah. But also weird just like the people you see in this movie who show up like later on in, in hollywood and other things i mean oh yeah sam witwer yeah sam witwer is the star one. wars fans would know him as darth, darth maul, maul and star killer yeah palpatine yeah palpatine uh, too fucking yeah just like witwer now it's funny to see him and just be like there yeah uh, and also, it's funny too. Is like one of his mil- his army buddies is another guy from The Walking Dead. The amount of fucking people oh, yeah. in this film that are Walking Dead alums to some way, shape, or form. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Thomas Jane wasn't. Yeah, it's almost Walking like you'd Dead. expect Andrew Lincoln to be fucking Drayton, <laughs> yeah. but ultimately isn't. Yeah, because Thomas Jane apparently Thomas Jane was like the first person attached to the project. Hmm. And if it's o four o five, I wouldn't be surprised if it has something to because do with like Punisher, Punisher yeah. maybe. I mean, that, that was the biggest thing he did around that time. At that time, I mean, yeah. it's the biggest thing he has done. But he's also like a character actor kind of, which right. again, if you're a character actor and you're in Durabont's radius, Durabont's radius, I bet he just like goes like, hey, would you be down? Right. Like, is, I mean, even though Bernthal exploded after The Walking Dead, after his play on The Walking Dead, the one of the first things Bernthal does after The Walking Dead is frank darabont's fucking tv show for tnt mob city oh yeah which is like i think a season or two but like the fact that Bernthal's first thing after that was darabont being like you got something <laughs> you're coming to work with me after you're done with season two yeah like it shows like anything i think darabont has shown in all three of these films he has a knack for like picking the right character the right actor for the right role especially if they're character actors <laughs> yeah yeah because you you Gosh, because at a certain point watching The Mist, I almost had Leo pointing at the TV energy of just like, ah, he's back. <laughs> oh, they brought him back. Oh, she's here. That's cool. Yeah. I'm glad they're here. This is fun. I hope this never gets sad. <laughs> and guess what? That's well, not true. Yeah. Because now we're going to have to talk about it. Because yeah. as, as, as much as I enjoy The Mist, because, I mean, it's would you say it's your least favorite, too? Or is or would you... Of these three? Yeah. Um... I was curious I about that. I think I maybe enjoyed it more than the Green Mile, if only because the Green Mile's so long. Understandable. And kind of treads some similar territory to Shawshank. Um, okay. I like. I really, really like all three of these movies. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think Green Mile's probably the least. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. That's. I mean, good. Good for the Mist. Because yeah. I mean, to me, I think the Mist is still great, but it's probably sure. my least favorite of the three. Yeah. However. That doesn't take away from the fact that out of all three of these films, if there's one that's going to make an impact on you pretty fast, it's the ending of this fucking film. Yeah, it leaves an impression. Yes. Because with the ending of this film, 
Darabont decides to take the ending that King gives the original short story, which is basically like, I don't know, it seems pretty grim, but hey, there's hope, and ultimately goes, <sighs> no hope. Yeah. Nice job trying to do something right, but uh, better luck next time, I guess. And it's like, yeah, it is shocking. Like to me, I think mean, I was talking to um, Adam about it, our our friend and my roommate about it last night where it's like at a certain point with this ending especially when you know what the ending's going to happen like you if you've seen this in clips a thousand times yeah. or you've seen this film multiple times there is a point in this ending where it almost goes into comedy levels of just insanely sad right yeah where it's like just... holy fucking shit of all the things to happen <laughs> at this moment all these things that one woman we thought was dead is still fucking alive yeah. she's how the fuck did she stay alive why does this have to happen to this poor man? Yeah. This is where we end this film. Right. There's to a degree. Well, the, yeah, the, the the humor of it is just like, yeah, just how hard this movie shits on <laughs> David Drayton of just like, wow, yeah. he had it bad and you just made it worse. Like, it really, he, I mean, they really do. Like, they, I mean, it's like, because it's also great too because the scene that happens before it, or at least – you know, when they make the decision that they do in the car, like it's yeah. it's silent when it just is like, you know, unanimous yeah. kind of like, yeah, this is the way to do it. It's so well done. It's so yeah. serious. It's well blocked. Well, speaking of the silence, I mean, that's something across this whole movie that's so cool is how yes. minimal the score is, like how little oh. music there is and how many moments are just characters staring at each other in uh-huh. silence. Like, what do we do? And then when the fucking score does come in, it is just. Yeah. It is so huge <laughs> and tragic and sad in its own way. And it's just like, yeah. God, take the music away. I don't know if I need you right now. It's <laughs> making this worse. But it's also the fact that, like, there are elements in the ending besides what actually, like, that, like, leaves things open to interpretation. Like, yeah. what happened to Drayton's wife? Right. And this and that. Oh, you mean in the novella? In the novella, yeah, yes. Yeah. And then in the film, it's like... No, you get answers for everything. You get answers. You get to see more of what's in the fucking myths. And it's like an element of like, I don't know how anyone can even live normally after dealing with this. (laughs) I don't even think the novella even goes into detail about like what caused the mist. I think this is something too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the the movie kind of makes that up. Which is... Makes up a new explanation. And it makes sense in terms of like what the film is trying to sell to you, especially what you've seen. But it's still like kind of wild to be like, I can't fucking believe they're actually explaining yeah. where this came from. I will say, I don't know that the explanation really adds anything. It doesn't no, take no. away. It's not like, ugh, this yeah. is lame now because I know what's happening. But it's yeah. very much like, I didn't really, I didn't really gain anything from knowing that. It doesn't enhance no, no, the, no. the meaning of the story or the terror. It's just yeah. like, oh, I guess the audience needs an explanation. Yeah. But it's also like, it's clear that like. It's there because the people in that store don't want the real ant- – they don't want the truth. Uh, yeah. At a certain point, what their minds have concocted is going on is much more yeah, for engaging sure. and scary than what is probably the truth. Actually happening. Yeah. And it also makes sense, too, that it would like – it's coming from someone who is not high-ranking in the military. It, yeah, would right. be, it would be silly to be like all these normal people and then there's just a general <laughs> – that was just involved yeah. in all of it. It's it's interesting to have somebody who is not only in the military but is also 
he knows uh, things, but he has doesn't have yeah. anything to do he's with He's a them. local, which yeah. I think if there's anything they could have really played up Whitworth's tie to both the old, his local roots as well as the military Yeah, because it's not until everything starts going south for him that he's suddenly yeah. like, I'm a local. You know me. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's oh, like, I guess oh. we do. Okay. Well, yeah, it's also the fact that, like, he doesn't have an on. I would I would say he has an on and off relationship, or will they, won't they, with <laughs> like a a woman who dies very early. <laughs> yes, but that's the funny thing too is like she dies nearly the next scene after. Yeah, and she it's dies like, like on her third scene, yeah, and it's like this is not, this is okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever. But ultimately, the ending happens, and it's gosh, it really. I think this really does cement. If this film was like in the top five of like Stephen King adaptations, like already. It solidifies it absolutely. It builds a brick wall around whatever placement it is in the top five because it yeah. really just keeps the essence of King even when King didn't think of it. Yeah. Which is, I think, what an adaptation should do. All three of these films are great examples of how Darabont understands the you know what an adaptation should do, whether it's not only should it really keep the essence of the original material, but also translates it well to a different medium because it's yeah. not going to work the same. Right, and it and also if it's a little old, like I don't know, twenty seven years old, maybe playing up a little bit, maybe <laughs> yeah. look at it and go, Man, I could I could add something to this, right? And that's when you get the mist. That's yeah. when you kind of get with this trilogy. I mean, yeah, overall, it's really a lot of a lot of Darabont's own choices that inform yes. yeah. what we these movies' identity as we know them, um, mm-hmm. and that's really what kind of makes him such a good adapter of king's yeah. work is that he just knows when something needs a different approach or a different change in the story yeah i'd love to have seen you know it might maybe in the future if i'm curious not for the for the podcast because i i maybe it's something we i do just randomly for myself but just like watch the other stuff he's done that's not king related uh-huh. i mean it's hilarious to think too that like yeah, he's he did, what was that movie the majestic there's the majestic with jim carrey and there's also a tv movie i think called the woman in red oh yeah with Jennifer okay. D- and which is like his technically his first film but it's a tv film right um but yeah because i'm curious to see because apparently like a big thing about darabont is that he's a script doctor we talked, I talked about it earlier, which basically means he goes through pretty popular scripts that are going to be turned into films and yeah. kind of just makes notes and changes things. I mean, Carrie Fisher was a big script doctor, too, when she was still alive. Right. Um, some of the films he was known for script doctoring, he actually did the 2014 Godzilla film. Apparently, he did a lot of <laughs> script doctoring for that. He did, I think, The Fan, which is a 90s film, Eraser, a Schwarzenegger film. Uh, he apparently did some script doctoring work on the huntsman sequel to snow white oh, and the huntsman yeah, 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 yeah. but um i i don't know if this is fully true i hope it is because we kind of this is a fun little tidbit apparently at one point he had a script in the running for kingdom of the crystal skull oh i didn't And apparently that. what happened was is that spielberg loved it but gave lucas the final go-ahead on a script and lucas hated it <laughs> and lucas said i don't want to use the script and wow. spielberg goes well the man said it. Unfortunately, he can't yeah. use it. And it's like, if that's true, uh, I would love to see what that Darabont yeah. script was. Yeah. I wonder if it's still alien-related. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. But um, You know, another um, – I meant to mention this when we were talking about Shawshank, but another kind of what-if loosely attached to these and Frank Darabont is um, Shawshank was almost going to be directed by Rob Reiner, the guy who did uh, Stand By Me. 
and it was going to star like they already had been talking to Tom Cruise for Andy Dufresne and Ugh. and um uh shoot I'm drawing a blank on who was going to be red um somebody else who was really if big it's at Eddie the time. Murphy I'm not not Eddie Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> no it was, it was actually it was a white guy like he was going to look more like the the original book red portrayal. yeah the Irish yeah. yeah Irishman um I mean Already, I mean, again, I think Rob Reiner wouldn't have been a bad choice. Oh, for sure, the story. yeah, for, but probably to be completely honest, I don't think Tom Cruise works in this setting. Yeah, personally, even that era at Cruise, oh, I know Harrison Ford was going to be red. That yeah. is wild. Yeah, that actually that changes I mean, the whole. I mean, when situ- you when you think about Cruise and Ford in the nineties. Yes. It makes a lot more sense for them as those. You yeah, know. I, I mean, guess. we're also thinking about the versions of the characters that we know today because of, of course. this movie. And yes. The yeah, characters yeah, yeah. might have felt very differently um, with those actors and with that director. But, yeah, just an interesting, like, uh, what if. That would have, yeah. I'd go to an alternate reality just to see if that was just even worth watching works, or not. Yeah. There's a lot of films like that. But that is that is a wild. That would also be kind of funny, too, because it, it would kind of probably have a color of money energy to it where it's like, there was a sequel to The Hustler with Paul Newman called The Color of Money right. where, like, you know, Tom Cruise was the young buck. Yeah. Yeah, that would change the energy so much differently because, at <laughs> least to me and Shawshank, it feels like two peers that respect and care each other yeah. and almost love each other platonically. Yeah. And if they had that dynamic, it would almost be like a father-son thing. Yeah. Kind of, especially with the age gap. Right. But, I mean... Because I, I don't, I don't know if Tim Robbins and what the age gap between Morgan and Tim were, but like Morgan it, Freeman just kind of plays old. He always, yeah, he like has he for a while. Is old, yeah. <laughs> and Tim just has like a face that just is. Tim looks like a guy that didn't look like his age until like maybe he hit like his mid thirties. He looks, or yeah, for a long time looked like a young person who'd seen way too much. I, like a young yeah. person who has lived a thousand years. He looks like a man that has been in Jacob's Ladder, which is what he was in. Yeah. He also, I need to rewatch that movie. I that always, movie terrified me as a kid. Say, I've yet to watch it in full because I've only seen clips. We'll watch it. Oh, that's fun. We'll I find a those. trilogy. No, uh, I don't know that we will. I mean, but. he's also in Howard the Duck, which is, I think, I guess, technically the first mm. time I had ever seen him as a kid because I actually owned that film. Yeah. Uh, that is, God, Tim Robbins has such a wild fucking career. <laughs> uh, he's in Bill Durham, too. All right, oh, now I'm just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just talking about Robbins films. That is the Frank Darabont Stephen King trilogy. Uh, we recommend all three of these films, yeah. especially after Skyline trilogy. We had to have a trilogy that were like we at least like one or two of these films unironically. <laughs> yeah, and thankfully the whole trilogy is fun. Right. And um, going forward, you know, today is the seventeenth. Yeah, seventeenth. You know, because we always record live. Uh, our next episode is going to be July first, right. and in honor of the release of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. We thought it would be fun to talk about the Indiana Jones sequels that are directed by none other than everyone's favorite director, Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Now that we're about to see, and Andy's about to see very soon, James Mangold's approach to an Indiana Jones sequel. Right, and what, supposedly ending it all. <laughs> I would assume so at yeah. this point. Um, we're curious to see, again, to revisit the idea of Spielberg making one of the best action-adventure films of all time and then going, well, George Lucas, what do we do next? How do we keep it going? And because of that, 
just in case you don't know who the sequels are, it is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And all three of those films in Indiana Jones and the sequels of Spielberg. <laughs> Andy was very proud about that. I am proud of him because that's going to be a fun one to write. Yeah. And I can't wait for him to constantly remind me what the title is and not <laughs> Indiana J- Spielberg's Indiana Jones sequels. We, we, we can do better. We yes, must do better. We absolutely can. So because of that, tune in on July 1st for, go for it, Andy. Indiana Jones and the sequels of Spielberg. <laughs> Until then, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.